the, with it being a tremendous ha handiwork of God's creation, but as we come to an appreciation of His spiritual blessings also given to us, what an opportunity it is to consider another lesson from His holy and divine will. As you noticed in the bulletin, our lesson tonight will in fact be entitled Sisera and the Lordly Dish. We will use as our text that verse that was read a few moments ago from Judges 5, verse 25. And as we look at that, we will seek to extract some lessons that will be beneficial to you and me on a daily basis, in fact, moment by moment, to greater plumb the mighty depths of God's wisdom and His love. To do that by way of introduction, might I make mention to you of one of the thoughts and features that you'll see on the next screen as it appears. You and I realize that we live in a time and in a, in a position and place where there are spiritual dangers all about us. We realize that we are in spiritual warfare. There is, in fact, the God of this world, namely the devil, who would, in fact, desire nothing more than to cause us to stumble, to fall, and to be apart and separate from the love and the mercy and the everlasting salvation of our Father in heaven. You see, Paul even stated himself, did he not, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Even Paul understood well the character and the fact that there's a warfare taking place. We would, in fact, make a terribly gigantic mistake if we fail to understand that. If we become careless and we fail to watch and we become such as we are disinterested in spiritual matters, we are easy pickings for the devil. We are such that our life becomes that which is easy for him to overtake, to work his way into, and to cause us to be less than pleasing before the eyes of heaven. And so it is that those who, in fact, have that desire to make heaven will ever be vigilant, ever be watchful, ever be realizing of the fact that there is a warfare and that that which is at stake is very, very important. No wonder Jesus himself stated in Matthew 6, 13, in that great prayer, that model prayer in which he taught others, his disciples, how to pray, he said, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, even the Lord made the statement it's important to pray that in fact God's leadership, and as we follow him, we will not come under the leadership and the guidance of the evil one. You see, as we then look at tonight's lesson, we will be interested in looking at how we must be watchful and how that, that watchfulness is so easily demonstrated in so many ways in the Bible. In fact, as I illustrate at the bottom of that screen, we're going to use as our primary emphasis and example an Old Testament character. That may seem a bit strange, for again, those Old Testament characters lived in a different day and time than us. But isn't it true? Mankind in his basic nature has changed none. Those desires and those propensities and those temptations which they had to face were in type the same ones that you and I must face and overcome. And it's also true that there is scarcely an issue in the New Testament that is not somehow presented by way of principle in the Old Testament. And with that said, we will then turn back the clock to the days of Sisera. And we will remind ourselves about the lordly dish that was mentioned in Judges 5.25. And as such, we will learn a, a gigantic lesson today about watchfulness. As we continue that thinking, 
between it on the right screen and the right page. In Judges chapters 4 and 5 will be the setting, the placing, if you will, of our study tonight. And it is to that set of chapters I would invite you to turn with me. We'll be looking at several verses contained therein. But let me set, if I might, some of the history so that we will be better positioned to appreciate Sisera when he is mentioned a little bit later in chapter 4. When God led the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, we might remember that he did so with his mighty hand by virtue of several plagues, ten in fact, and following that number, in fact, the Egyptians hastened the children of Israel to exit. As God proceeded to lead them through the wilderness wandering, they ultimately, in 40 years' time, came to the very border of the eastern side of the land of Canaan. They had had opportunity to enter that land much sooner, but because of unbelief and because of their sin, 40 years wandering was the punishment placed upon them. But finally, as the book of Joshua opens, Moses having passed away, Joshua leads the children of Israel across the Jordan River. They proceed to not only conquer that land, but to divide it amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. As the book of Joshua closes, we then are led to appreciate that the promised land has come into their possession. They have reached the destination, at least in the temporary allotment, of what God had in mind for them, that land that flowed with milk and honey. What a blessing. What a grand thing to which they pointed as they had arrived at that place. That quickly leads us, though, to the book of Judges. And isn't it sad when we first read in this book how that on that occasion the people, in fact, were much like a roller coaster. There was a while that they would be faithful to God. And during that time, God richly blessed them. He took care to make sure that their enemies did not overpower them. However, we also quickly learn that there were no kings in Israel at that time. There, in fact, was only the recognition that God was their leader. They were bound to him by the covenant, the law of Moses, if you will. There was no earthly capital, no earthly king who was their leader. God and he alone was to be their guide and their director. That takes us back to that roller coaster, though. For not only were there times of faithfulness when they did pursue the way of God, there were also times in which they lapsed into idolatry and times when they rebelled against the very God who had brought them into this rich land that flowed with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 28 verse 7 had told us what blessings they would receive when they followed him. They would be protected from enemies. Their oppressors would not overpower them, but rather they would safely be able to conquer and to dwell in that land. But when they turned their back on God, he had also told them that I will no longer protect you. Your enemies will overpower and overtake you, and you will be slaves to them. The book of Judges is a testimony to that very thing. For during those times when they did rebel against God and were not faithful to Him, God allowed their enemies to overtake them. And thus they became oppressed by these enemy nations, these heathen peoples, and not only that, they were slaves to them. Six times in the book of Judges that cycle is repeated. Six times when the children of Israel would fall into idolatry and turn their back on God, they would find themselves overpowered by those who were their enemies. And every time when they did come to their senses and turn back to God, God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, as the Old Testament calls him or her. 
And that judge would proceed to militarily lead Israel to overpower and again come back to the position of independence in the, children, in the, land, of e in the land of Canaan. As we see chapters 4 and 5, we're ready to look more carefully at the characters who will be the subjects of tonight's lesson. Thinking about those judges, we remember that there was Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah. Deborah, in fact, is mentioned in Judges chapters 4 and 5. She was the only female judge that Israel ever had. In these two chapters, we learn something interesting about the time when she judged Israel. Notice chapter number 4 opens. We appreciate that the female judge Deborah particularly judged at a time when the enemy happened to be the Canaanites themselves. I've listed some more considerations for you, some facts for you to take note of. As chapter number 4 opens, the Canaanite king Jabin was allowed by God to become powerful enough and he oppressed many in Israel. His military leader was a man named Sisera. And they two together would wage war or battle against the children of Israel. But at this time, Deborah was the judge. She realized that there was a military man in Israel whose name was Barak. And she encouraged him to join alliance with her. And they would again pursue military battle against these Canaanites, these enemy peoples. As we begin to note, these Canaanites were very fierce and strong and mighty. In fact, many chariots of iron were possessed by them, and it may have seemed that Israel had little chance of defeating them. However, Deborah and Barak had confidence in God. They, in fact, placed in him their confidence, and they understood the fact that they, by the promise and power of God, would be victorious. As the chapter unfolds, we come to verses 10 and following, where the battle finally takes place. Specifically in verse 15, we learn something remarkable in that the text expressly says that the Lord discomfited the Canaanites. That is, Jabin and Sisera and their host. We begin to note that it wasn't only Barak and Deborah. God was on their side. That word to discomfit means to rout. It means to confuse. And thus God overpowered, confused, and routed the enemies of Israel. That becomes all the more interesting when in verse 16 we notice that Sisera began to perceive that things were not going well for him, that he was going to be defeated. He thus abandoned his chariot and proceeded to flee on foot. However, Barak was aware that he was fleeing on foot and Barak and Israel chased him. He was the enemy and they desired to capture and to kill him. However, as he fled we will notice that a lady, a woman named Jael, extended to him the opportunity to hide. She invited him to come into her tent, and there she would conceal or hide his whereabouts so that Barak and the children of Israel would not be able to find him. No doubt, Sisera was very thankful for the invitation. He entered into her tent. She covered him with a mantle or a rug, if you will. But notice, in the process, he asked her, being thirsty for some water, she opened a skin, the text informs us, and proceeded to give him milk instead. Later in Judges 5.25, in an inspired commentary on that, it says again that when asked on that occasion, he gave, or she gave to him, butter in a lordly dish. 
as the story proceeds to unfold, this is what happened. In a place of being concealed, hidden under that rug, the security he felt was such that he went to sleep. And once he fell asleep, Jael, who was his enemy, but he knew it not, she took a tent peg, drove it through his temples, and killed him. In the scene of that event, we begin then to notice several lessons concerning watchfulness that you and I might certainly take note of. As we revisit that scenario, that saga of long past, notice with me some of the things that you and I might well appreciate. As I stated at the very bottom of that screen, after fleeing on foot, we notice that after his death, we do learn something interesting about this incident in Sisera's life. He was put to death by Jael, this woman. But in it, is it not possible for you and I to also learn some valiant lessons about watchfulness, about the importance and the necessity and the essentiality of always being ever vigilant and ever careful? In fact, might I ask you to note some four lessons I believe we can well consider and document from the Word of God relative to this very scene. Think about these with me if you would. Lesson number one. Dangers can arise in unexpected ways. Think with me again about the situation concerning Sisera. Here was a man who was a military commander, a military leader. When he perceived that the battle was going against him, he proceeded to flee on foot. And his only possibility of being saved from Barak and the forces of Israel was to find somewhere to hide or to have someone offer to him the opportunity of being concealed. When Jael extended that, no doubt this person was very thankful. No doubt Sisera felt like he might have opportunity to save his life. Thus he entered very thankfully, no doubt, into her tent and there perceived the security that she had attempted to offer. But might you also think with me about this? That security was a short-lived one. Do you and I not often see that there often are dangers that lurk in unexpected places? When in our Christian life we perhaps become careless and we are not as watchful as we ought to be, that's the very moment that Satan will pounce upon us and gobble us up in no time flat. That's how clever and subtle he is. Think back to the Garden of Eden again. In Genesis chapter 3, was it not the case? The text described him as being more subtle than any beast of the field. Genesis 3 verse 1. And isn't it true that in his conversation with Eve... It is not that he overtly came out and told her what he was doing, but rather he asked her to observe how good the fruit looked. And he then lied to her and told her how good it would make her to be like God. And all the while, he was leading her down a place where there was, a, where there was an eternal trap. She never realized it until it was too late. You see, dangers can lurk in unexpected places and in unexpected ways. In the animal kingdom, that moth that seems to fly about so freely is a bat snack in the next few moments. You see, in unexpected ways, things can occur, and it's also true in the Christian life, isn't it? When you and I engage in something that may appear to be so innocent, and we give not the proper consideration to what may be its consequences, but once the consequences come, it's too late. 
once the event has happened, it can't be undone. In fact, in the Bible, are we not warned on many occasions about being ever careful? In fact, the verse is so familiar. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. A hungry lion does not seek food just to consider it without any other end than to destroy it. And so it is with Satan. We as his enemies are those whom he desires to capture and to, in fact, completely overwhelm us. And he does not intend to be our friend. He intends to be our eternal enemy. Not only that, consider other passages in the scriptures that challenge us on this very point. In Acts chapter 8, the early days of the church, here was a man. He was a sorcerer by tradition, if you will. His name was Simon. He had been one who specifically had misled and deceived the people of Samaria. And yet, when Philip came preaching the truth of Christ's gospel, this man obeyed it. He not only heard it, but the text says in verses 12 and following that he too was baptized. This sorcerer, this magician, this one who had misled and beguiled people had become a servant of the Almighty God of heaven. However, how long did Satan wait to tempt him? How long did Satan wait before he aroused within that man the very issue which would be an unexpected danger? It wasn't five verses later until we learned that this man Simon observed that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the power of the Holy Spirit was transmitted or transferred and he thus said, I'd like to purchase it. I'd like to buy it with money. And Peter confronted him to the face and said, Thou art in the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. Thou ought to pray that the sin of thy heart may be forgiven thee. You see, this man, Satan had welled up within him the very thought of his former way of life when he was a sorcerer and used that to tempt him and this man fell into temptation. And it happened so quickly. Isn't that a warning for you and me to ever be aware that too you and I in a moment's notice can fall into temptation and into a snare? But you see, in thinking about Sisera's entering into Jael's tent and what he thought was security would really be his deathbed, think about what occurred next. For there's another lesson in this. That second lesson is that those dangers are not only unexpected, they can be fatal. And I'm not talking about physical fatality either. Revisit with me Sisera's matter, if you would. Sisera entered into that tent. Once she covered him with that mantle or that rug and gave him then the protection and every indication of assurance of safety from Barak, he drifted off to sleep. Absolutely, it would seem assured and confident of his security and safety. And yet, he would never leave her tent alive. He never exited that tent alive. You see, that danger that lurked there for him was fatal. It was his downfall. You and I, too, are in a position spiritually where we must never forget that fact. For you see, that warfare that we're fighting, the one I mentioned at the outset, it is not a battle of flesh and blood. It's a battle of spirit and soul. And you see, Christ Jesus wants our eternal spirit housed with him in heaven forevermore, but Satan does not wish that. And thus, those mistakes that lead to sin, those things that we may do, those dangers that lurk, 
they may well cost us an eternity in heaven. They may, in fact, lead to our eternal destruction in a devil's hell. Oh, how severe it is to think about then these lurking dangers and how terrible and how awful they indeed can be. Think about Judas as a grand example. Notice that Judas himself was an apostle. He was one of the chosen twelve. As such, he went out on the limited commission of Matthew 10. He had power to cast out serpents and evil things and spirits. He had power, in fact, to do many of the various miracles and other works given to the other apostles. And yet, Luke 22, verse 3, makes this statement, Then Satan entered into Judas. Satan entered into Judas. On this occasion, that which was in, say, in the heart of Judas, that which was his innermost desire, we are told he was a thief in John 12. We're told he held the bag. Satan found an opportunity to pounce on Judas. When he entered into Judas, we began to see what happened. Judas sought opportunity to betray, to sell Jesus. That's ultimately what happened. And as the scene concludes, we notice in Matthew 27, 5, that Judas ran back, threw down the money, the coins that he'd been given, and he went out and hanged himself. He committed suicide. Satan had him, but it was too late until he knew it. That danger that had caught up with Judas was an eternal one. It was a severe one. Later in Acts chapter 1, as Peter recollected on the very thought of what had happened to him, he made note that this man Judas was the son of perdition. This was the son of destruction, the son of being lost. Do we not then see a warning for us in that very matter? Sisera's error, his carelessness turned out to be fatal. If you and I are careless in matters spiritual, it could be our fatality as well. And it may be so terrible to then think that in eternity we might well think back and remember that gigantic mistake that we made. Oh, how careful we must be. Always watchful, always vigilant. But what about a third lesson? In addition to these two, consider yet another one as we think about Sisera. Notice also, too, that Sisera placed his trust in Jael. As he fled from the pursuing forces of Barak, when she, namely Jael, offered to him the opportunity of security and to hide from Barak, he took it. He entered into that tent thinking that that was his opportunity to be saved. When all the while he placed his confidence and trust in humanity, we easily see then that in a matter of moments that confidence he'd placed in her turned out to be his downfall for she killed him. You and I realize that we too may feel at ease putting our trust in humanity, but that is a foolish decision. Spiritually, it is never good to place our confidence and our trust in humanity. For you see, humans are fallible. They make mistakes. Nobody is perfect, but God is. And His Word is. And there is then the proper place for confidence, for trust, and to recognize that that's where we should appreciate our direction and guide. We read in Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, it is not good to place confidence in man. It is not good. Later in Psalm 146, verse 3, we note the commandment, put not your trust in man. 
nor in the Son of Man, in whom is no help. Man is no help spiritually, but we notice that God's Word is. Sisera, if he'd placed his trust in the side of Israel, in the God of heaven, he wouldn't have found himself in Jael's tent to begin with. Had he recognized the leadership of God in his people, had he noted the character of, in fact, the forces of Deborah and Barak, he would have known that once God began to discomfit them, God was on the enemy's side, and thus he was in the wrong place. We learn in the New Testament, do we not, time and time again, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Thus, when those Jews of his day were seeking confidence and counsel in humanity, Jesus told them once and forevermore that I am the way to heaven and there is no other. That exclusive means, that road then that leads to everlasting life is the road we must trod and it's the only way of security and safety. At this point, might we comment on that verse that was read for us earlier? Did you notice? There was a slight change in wording We've noted the easiness that seemed to be present between Sisera and Jael. Initially, he had asked for water. The text said she gave him milk. And then in Judges 5.25, it says that she gave him butter in a lordly dish. There's significance in that. Notice the adverb lordly. It means majestic. It means honorable. And thus, when Jael invited Sisera into her tent to conceal and hide him, she treated him like royalty. He, after all, was the military commander of the Canaanite army. And as she then served him butter in a lordly dish or in a majestic bowl, she did so and that gave him the impression that she was treating him well, that she honored and respected and admired his position as military leader. However, that word butter is not a word that is a contradiction to the previous chapter. Milk and butter are, of course, not exactly the same thing. That Hebrew word there means milk that's clabbered or milk that's somewhat thicker. In the ancient days, that was a delicacy. To take what you and I would see as clabbered milk but sweeten it with some kind of special sweetener, it was rather highly prized in those days. She served him that milk in a majestic or lordly bowl. In consequence of that, he felt assured and confident, and he was not watchful. You see, Satan makes sin look so pleasing. He conceals it and hides it to where the danger is not apparent. That's what makes it so terrible, isn't it? One thinks he's walking into a reasonable place when all the while there's a trap waiting. And by the time the trap is perceived, it's too late to back out. Satan plays that trip over and over and over again in our world. To that person who is somewhat depressed or who is having great difficulties in life, he may dangle drugs before them. And so they take them thinking that it's only a temporary matter to help me through a hard time. And before they know it, they're addicted. And before they know it, it's too late to back out. Or to that person who is feeling a great amount of oppression or affliction from pressures at work or other means of society. And so they engage in an activity they would normally never even consider. All the while, perhaps under cover of darkness, but Satan has given you the bait and they've taken it hook, line, and sinker. And once the deed is done, you can't undo it. 
once the deed is committed, it is forevermore a part of that person's history. Once Sisera had gone into the tent, Jael had him where she wanted him. She killed him when he was asleep. Satan can take us, pounce on us so swiftly and so easily, and hence point number four. Let us not be guilty of falling for a lordly dish. Let us, on the other hand, be ever watchful. Exhortation to watchfulness and faithfulness. Sisera was not as watchful as he should have been. He trusted Jael. It's true he was in a difficult position, but he trusted and he got caught for that. Let us think for just a moment about how so many in our world choose to live materialistically. God has blessed our land so richly. Isn't it amazing how abundant things are, food, clothing, shelter? We have it here so much more than so many other places in our world. And so many choose to give all the attention of life only to that. They never think about spiritual matters, do they? Or at least far less often than they should. You see, what's going to happen when the end of life comes is just what happened to Sisera by virtue of Jael. Ease, materialism, thinking that all is comfortable and well, when all the while, when the day of judgment comes, it'll be too late. Satan will have captured you. The battle will have been won, and he will be victorious. It'll be too late then to do anything about it. We must ever be watchful. And no wonder then Jesus so often warned his hearers to be watchful. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, two chapters, not far from the end of Jesus' physical life on earth, time and again he warned and he prodded and he encouraged and every time his message had to do with watchfulness. In fact, replay in your mind how some of those teachings went. In Matthew 24, that great sermon, that great lesson dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. Jesus said there's no signs for it. It'll be like a thief in the night. You must ever then always be ready for there will be no signs foretelling when it's coming. You must be always, every moment ready. As he drove that point home, he illustrated it by saying that servant in a master's house who is not as dedicated as he ought to be when the master goes away on a distant trip, the servant begins to live in a way he ought not. He spends his master's things foolishly. He takes advantage of the things his master left. Jesus said, what will happen when that master returns and finds out what he did? That leads directly into chapter 25 where the first 13 verses of the chapter Jesus tells a parable known as the five wise and five foolish virgins. He says there were ten virgins and five were five and were wise and five were foolish. He says that in the recognition of the bridegroom coming, they all started out with oil. But the five wise ones brought extra oil just in case the bridegroom delayed his coming. And thus they were always ready. But the five foolish virgins brought only enough oil for the time present. And hence when their oil ran out and the bridegroom had not yet come, they were left in the dark. They were not ready. Thus, when they asked the wise for some of their oil, the wise properly responded, If we give you part of ours, then we will not have enough, for we do not know when the bridegroom comes either. By the time they had gone and purchased oil and came back, the bridegroom had come. They had entered in. The door was shut, and they were left out in the cold. And when they asked to come in, the master responded, the bridegroom, in fact, 
that because you weren't ready, because I came and you weren't prepared, the door is now shut and you may not enter. The Lord's conclusion, His teaching in verse 13 was this, Be ye always ready. That lesson was as timely for us today as ever. We shouldn't be like Sisera, looking only for the moment, but we must always be prepared and ready and never be fooled by a lordly dish. What's more, notice the text that Jesus also used in other places as well. As he warned in chapter 25, following the five wise and five foolish virgins, he talked about the man who'd been given various talents. One, five talents, another two talents, a third one, yet one talent. And notice those that had used them and thus were prepared and ready. They were blessed when the master returned. But the one talent man that hadn't used his, he wasn't prepared and he wasn't ready and hence he was cast out. Matthew 25 verse 30. To say all that leads us then to note that this exhortation to watchfulness, notice again the words of Paul in Romans 12. For in the first two verses of that chapter, I beseech you therefore, brethren, and in that beseechment, notice how he follows it, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul thus encouraged the Romans, don't you be careless. Don't you be those who do not watch. Don't be conformed to the world, but you be transformed. And in the renewal of your mind, unlike Sisera, you be watchful, always ready, always vigilant, and prepared to do the bidding of God. What a potent and challenging lesson always for you and me, isn't it? No wonder Paul could say in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, he said, For whatsoever is gain to me, that I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to account them but dung that I may win Christ. You see, Paul knew that to fall astray, to go aside, to lose faithfulness and watchfulness would be a tremendous mistake, an eternal one at that. And thus, as Paul drew near the close of his life, he could say, I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. All the while, he thus knew that henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love his appearing. Have you ever noticed that the word love is not in past tense? It's a continual loving of the Lord and His appearing. And if we love Him, we will be ready to watch Him, be ready to receive Him, be ready to meet Him. And thus, are you ready? Or maybe have you begun to make the mistake of Sisera with regard to the lordly dish? Don't become careless. Don't become those or like a person like him who would begin to look upon material things or other things and lose sight of heaven. Heaven is too grand and too great, and it's worth everything. Tonight, as you think about your life, and as we each ponder our own, are you a faithful Christian? Have you obeyed the gospel initially? God sent his Son into the world, not that he would condemn the world, but that the world through him could be saved, John 3.17. This very afternoon, have you obeyed the gospel? Have you had your name enrolled in the Lamb's book of life as mentioned in Revelation 21? 
If you have, you know the glorious goodness of being vigilant and always ready and prepared. If you haven't done that, do that this afternoon. Christ died at Calvary to forgive your sins. Will you not allow him to do that by faithfully obeying his commandments? Believe upon him. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess his grand and majestic name as the Son of God. And then be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. Once you do that, then walk faithfully with him until death so that those marvelous words of Revelation 14, 13 could be described of you. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. You see, that's what we all strive for, to die in the Lord. For you see, to die outside the Lord means an eternity with the devil. If you need to respond then publicly to the gospel call today, will you not let that be done? And will you not, in fact, not make that mistake of Sisera, but to be watchful and always ready to do the Lord's bidding? If we could help you in a public way, let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.